This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast. I am Robert Talese, your host. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, which is a project based at the University of Connecticut that explores how to balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness, a respect for reason, and intellectual humility. The podcast, which is made possible by generous funding from the John Templeton Foundation, features brief discussions with publicly-minded thinkers about the state of civil discourse in contemporary democracy. Today, my guest is Kate Mann. Kate is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Cornell University. She specializes in moral philosophy, social philosophy, and feminist philosophy. She has a new book, which is titled Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny, and it's published by Oxford University Press. Now, Kate also writes regularly for popular venues, including the Huffington Post, the Times Literary Supplement, and the New York Times. Hello, Kate. Thanks for having me on the show, Bob. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, so uh, let's let's begin with uh, some of the material uh, that uh, that appears in in the book, which is a, a spectacular book, by the way. Um, so, Down Girl develops an analysis of misogyny as it features in uh, political and public life. Um, I thought we might begin with, just can you tell us a little bit about that analysis? And, and maybe maybe one place to start would be with the contrast you draw between um, misogyny and sexism. Yeah, thanks. I think that's a great place to start. So I think about misogyny and sexism as working hand in hand to uphold patriarchal social structures and institutions. And I basically think of sexism as the ideology that rationalizes and tries to naturalize and make it seem as if male dominance makes sense, and misogyny as the system that polices and enforces male dominance and women's subordination to men within local bastions of power and privilege and male entitlement. So that's the kind of contrast I'm drawing between misogyny as this policing system, the law enforcement branch of patriarchy, and sexism as the kind of theory, the false theory that backs it up. Excellent. Now, the book is subtitled The The Logic of Misogyny. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how that analysis runs? So we've got a distinction between the ideology of uh, male domination and then the enforcement of male dominance. Um, uh, what's the what's the logic of the of the policing of male domination? Yeah, so I wanted to draw attention to the ways in which misogyny makes sense from the inside. I think um, one way to look at it is we have these patriarchal norms and expectations. And they have a wide variety of forms for different groups of women, depending on different um, intersecting social factors like race, sexuality, being cis or trans, class, uh, embodiment in um, other aspects, 
but um, it's also uh, the kind of the general logic of misogyny is to enforce the norms that do apply to women as well as girls in that particular social class. And I think that from the perspective of someone who's perpetuating or enacting misogynistic social forces, it often doesn't feel like hatred or hostility that's directed towards women as such. It feels like it's directed towards a person who just so happens to be a girl or woman who's stepping out of line. So from the inside, the way I see it is it often feels like a morally righteous punishment or expression of resentment or putting someone in their proper place when she's held to deserve it rather than a witch hunt. From the inside, it makes sense. Right. And so can you tell us a little bit more then about the, it's a a, a misogyny is a system of policing some women. Um, I take it that sometimes the enforcement um, and the policing is done by women, again, you know, women with respect to women that they regard as significantly or in various ways uh, different from them. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So to return to the sexism misogyny contrast, mm-hmm. I think that often sexist ideology differentiates between men and women in these very monolithic and often um, both scientific and actually unscientific ways, given that what we often would need to establish our sex differences is a control group, um, men and women raised in a society without patriarchal norms and expectations, and we have none such. So that's sexist ideology, and I think of misogyny as often drawing a different contrast between good women and bad women. So there are actually quite powerful incentives for women as well as men and possibly also non-binary people in some contexts to enforce patriarchal norms and expectations um, for girls and women in order to um, differentiate themselves from the bad ones, the quote-unquote bad ones by the lights of patriarchal ideology. So I suppose that one way to look at it is um, establishing that distance between yourself and someone who's marked as a target for misogynist hostility can be a kind of self-preservation mechanism. And I think to some extent, it's something that can be quite tempting for at least many um, women, me included, and something to, to try to correct for as a tendency in ourselves. I see. And can you say uh, uh, a little bit about the distinction between uh, th- that that exists within the logic of misogyny between uh, the, the 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 good and the bad, uh, the good women and the bad women? Uh, how are I, I suspect that 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 distinction gets drawn in all kinds of different ways along all kinds of different um, uh, conceptual lines? Can you tell us a little bit about how, about how that works? Yeah. Well, I think maybe. Um The one interesting domain in which it exists, which I don't talk about in the book, but which I've thought about quite a bit for obvious professional reasons, is the distinction between good and bad women in philosophy. Mm. So I think um, in our discipline, you know, I've been explicitly told by, um, it's usually men, but not exclusively men, you're one of the good ones. 
<laughs> both as a both as a woman in philosophy and as a feminist philosopher, partly because of my background in logic. So the subtitle was partly a tongue-in-cheek, um, somewhat sardonic reference to the fact that there are these hierarchies of knowledge and um, you know masculine-coded kinds of uh, you know subspecialties within the discipline that. Um, yeah, the masculine-coded ones tend to be ranked the highest in these hierarchies, and women who, you know, somehow um, are seen as proving their chops in logic or are otherwise, um, you know, towing the line in being, say, deferential to male authority figures, those are all ways of being quote-unquote good. And I got very sick of that. Um, You know, it's a pretty... It's a pretty terrible compliment when you think about it. So part of um, the subtitle, at least in terms of its meaning for me, was to try to distance myself from the set of values that would rank um, certain kinds of um, you know, hyper-analytic philosophy above um, other modes of philosophical Um, investigation that I also think can be really smart and important and insightful and also merit careful engagement. Oh, good. So I see. So then just taking the, the, uh, the specific case, uh, that we were just talking about in philosophy and, and sort of, uh, uh, talking more broadly. So the, the, the system of misogyny then, am I right to say that, um, this is a policing mechanism that is uh, uh, perpetrated against or exercised with respect to women who are overtly challenging the sexist ideology with, or the, the white dominant ideology. Would that be the, the way in which the, the, the good versus the bad gets sorted in the misogynist uh, mechanism? Yeah, I think that's often the case. Um, I think, you know, it gets complicated because sometimes you also get women who are represented as violating patriarchal norms and expectations even when they're not, or they're treated as surrogates or proxies for other women. And sometimes we have um, patriarchal sins of omission committed by no one in particular. So it gets quite complicated in that we have these cases where, um, you know, to extend beyond the realm of philosophy, we take a man who felt a sort of classic sense of male entitlement to certain kinds of feminine-coded service and love and emotional labor, um, it can be the case that he'll then designate a particular woman who may even be a stranger to him as someone who then becomes the um, target for misogynist hostility because no woman has kind of turned up to play the social role he expected some woman to play. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's 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 incredibly helpful, um, and maybe it's also a nice uh, a nice way to sort of segue. So, the book is filled with all kinds of, of really stimulating, very interesting uh, analytical points. Um, but and maybe I can ask at this point, sort of, um, you know, as as I was reading uh, reading the book, um, it's very sad uh, how topical it is. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, on the one hand, I'm sure it's it's good to see um, a, a work of philosophy, you know, 
be topical in this way. It's just that the topic is is it's it's it. Um, so it's it's no exaggeration uh, to say that new revelations of powerful, famous, visible men uh, committing various acts of uh, sexual misconduct at various degrees of severity. Th- these revelations come daily. Uh, it seems. Um, what are we to make of this? Is is it just? Um, is, are there? Is, is it just the reporting is better? The empowerment is. Uh, you know, women now feel empowered in a way that they hadn't. Uh, you know, it seems like a year or two ago. Or is there something else at work? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I want to give a just given that um, Time Magazine just made uh, Person of the Year or you know Figure of the Year Silence Breakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but failed to feature the founder of the Me Too campaign, Tarana Burke, a black feminist activist who's been engaged in this work for many, many years. I just wanted to give a shout out to Tarana Burke for being like, you know, just pioneering achievements in these terms. And in particular for founding, um, for coining the phrase Me Too, Mm -hmm. which I think is very smart and has actually been crucial in bringing out um, a lot of voices on this topic to testify about men who have been serial sexual predators. Because what the Me Too coinage does is it says, me, uh, there is a narrative that one can tell that does uh, feature or center on oneself as a victim of a certain act of um, sexual predation or harassment or assault. And I don't know that many women um, who don't have such a story or several or sometimes dozens. And But the two passes the baton on to the next person and says, look, I'm not unique. I'm not, you know, doing the kind of thing that is um, wrongly gets people impugned for, quote, unquote, playing the victim. What I'm doing is I'm saying this is a ubiquitous kind of crime or kind of misconduct which deserves to be drawn attention to this you know doesn't have to um, define one's whole life um, if it does then that's not a moral failing it's you know something quite tragic but we need to be looking at the prevalence in the culture which enables and perpetuates these kinds of crimes such that yeah an enormous number of girls and women among others are coming forward with these narratives that, um, yeah, have both the me component and the two component in acknowledgement that this is a ubiquitous social problem. And do you think that um, the ubiquity of the uh, of the problem, um, or let me put it this way, do you think that part of the problem is that um, roughly half the population doesn't realize how ubiquitous the problem is? Yeah, I think so, because it's actually a pretty small minority of men who are, are we, you know, I think the best evidence suggests usually serial sexual predators. And look, this is a very rough statistic because it's hard to get good numbers on this. So I'm always um, tempted to give numbers that show uh, that this is definitely, um, you know, a big enough problem to be taken seriously, but I don't try to rest too much on data when, you know, they're hard to get um, very precise. But around 5% of men maybe are serial sexual predators. Um, You know, so it's not... So we have roughly half the population, um, 
you know, who has some experience with this and, um, you know, a significant number of um, boys and men who do as well, but also many who don't. I also suspect that haven't seen figures about non-binary folks, so I don't mean to um, exclude them by any means from the conversation. I just don't think we have um, statistics that I'm aware of, but I suspect there is a great vulnerability there. But at any rate, if you look at the whole picture, a lot of men are ignorant, and partly that I think is somewhat um, willful and sometimes culpable ignorance, but part of it is also that women don't speak out about these things because telling one's story tends to result in being impugned as, you know, either, um, yeah, kind of maudlin or melodramatic, even if one's not suspected of lying or being hysterical there are kind of subtler mechanisms that mean that even if one has had a whole host of experiences that do bear mentioning and were really very brazen and are worth calling attention to, particularly when you've been through them and you can testify to the fact that you can, you know, get through them and not, you know, that they're, they're not something which needs to be um, one's whole identity, as is often wrongly um, stereotyped of admitted victims of sexual assault. Um, But you don't get that happening because of these sort of moralizing mechanisms that prevent you from stating simple truths like, I was assaulted. So I saw Martha Nussbaum at King's giving a lecture in which she um, told her story of sexual assault um, some 40 years ago, and it was very moving because there she was, immensely powerful. I admire her enormously. Um, and she didn't even need to use Survivor Talk because there she was at the podium. Right. So um, what do you make of the, what does your analysis suggest one should make of the phenomenon of other visible, famous, powerful men um, condemning the acts of people who have been um, alleged, uh, credibly alleged to be serial uh, sexual harassers and serially guilty of various kinds of sexual misconduct. What what are we to make of the the, the public pronouncements that are supposed to be expressions of solidarity with the victims of these uh, acts that start with, um, uh, often start with a peculiar piece of autobiography, like I have two daughters (laughs) Or, you know, my, I'm very close with my sister or I've always loved my mother. And on the basis of that, (laughs) I condemn, this strikes me as a, as a very peculiar, but, um, again, ubiquitous feature of public pronouncements that you have to be, you have to affirm a, a meaningful relation with some particular woman or girl in order to signal your, yeah, the propriety of of your uh, of your outrage at sexual misconduct. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, it's just it's such a ridiculous statement. It so misses the point. I mean, one possibility is that um, you know you could just say that assault, you know, sexual assault is you know a grave moral wrong, and one you know relates to the thought of one's will being overridden in ways that render one 
temporarily, but, you know, in the moment, genuinely powerless or helpless in ways that are obviously terrifying and can be traumatizing, um, you know, almost always traumatizing in the short term and can be in the long term. And that's just, a, you know, something that, of course, one has to listen to the testimony of people who are embodied in specific ways, but it doesn't take a, a lot of reading slash imagination to figure out, yeah, this is a, a thing that people um, you know, would be seriously damaged by. But there's also this aspect to the relational talk that bothers me when it comes to women and girls in particular, because we're often set up not as subhuman or imagined as objects, but we're seen as human givers whose human capacities are owed to usually dominant men in the vicinity. So in the worst cases, these statements sound to my ear like, well, I have a woman who I don't want damaged. She's, you know, in my family and she's important to me and she gives me this and that. And I love her very much for being a provider of succor and nurture and other kinds of moral goods. Don't besmirch her and don't damage her. She's mine. And that's just gross, morally obtuse, and really perpetuates the same dynamic as is underlying these kinds of um, these forms of wrongdoing. Right. So, would, yeah. would you go? I'm sorry. Would you go so far as to say that that preface to the condemnation? I have two daughters at home, or I am the I am the brother of a sister with whom I'm very close. Um, yeah, right. Is, is this a further, um, is it a fur, further affirmation of the the um, male-dominant ideology that drives those expressions? Totally. It's so patriarchal. I mean, I, I say this, it's, it, for men who said it, you know, I'm not saying that they're, you know, um, re, you know entrenched patriarchs, but I am them, encouraging them to rethink it. Um, just, you know, the simplest exercise in the world is to reverse the genders and see how that plays. Right. You know, I'm the um, cousin of several men, and as such, I feel like that sounds ridiculous. Yeah. So given that, given that that is almost an unintelligible statement without some backstory, um, yeah, I think it bears reflecting on that there are certain well-meaning statements that nonetheless completely perpetuate patriarchal relations, the relations that misogyny then enforces when they go wrong. Right. Um, how, so let me just put two things together and, and um, uh, well, and, and see where they go. So similar to the, to the, I, I, I'm a, you know, I'm a father of two daughters and preface. Um, We've also seen some some powerful men um, uh, with the Roy Moore uh, series of episodes, or however you want to call what's unfolding in Alabama. Um, so Mitch McConnell uh, very early came out and said, "I believe the women," and then uh, hasn't yet said that he no longer believes the women who have accused Roy Moore. But now it looks as if the withholding of the support or the the the, the calls for Roy Moore to remove himself from the race. Um, the the suspension of Republican Party support for uh, his uh, uh, campaign effort, all of that has gone away. Um, what does it mean when a when a when a powerful person says, "I I believe the women who are accusing this person of sexual misconduct," 
but then none of the behavior seems to be appropriate given that belief. Yeah, no, that's such a great question. It's, it's devastating, and it's, it's also not surprising to me. I think that, um, I think it was a majority of Trump voters who actually believed that he was a serial sexual harasser and assailant, and they still voted for him. They believed the women, but they just didn't care. I think we make a mistake to think that testimonial injustice is a kind of root cause of the social injustice of perpetuating a culture in which powerful men get away with these kinds of wrongdoing. I think that one way to allow him to get away with it, which is ultimately the unifying kind of explanation for all the mechanisms that kick in that we don't want to see him go down or that we want to keep supporting him, um, one way to do it is to say we don't believe her. Another is to say, well, we believe her, but then we just kind of look past it. Yet another way is to say we believe her, but she, you know, she should be over it. It's not that big of a deal. Um, you know, Joseph, father of Jesus, did it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just, it's, it's morally disgusting, but it happens all the time. So let us not... Let us use this as an opportunity to see that it is a myth that once women are believed in their stories, once, you know, their stories are credible enough that all will be well in terms of justice. That is not the case. Right. So could, so a, a, a good part of the book, um, a good section of the book is, um, you know, wrestles with the presidential election, wrestles yeah. with the fact that, um, as you were just saying, um we all heard and saw uh, the person who was running for president boast about sexual assault, <laughs> about committing sexual assault. Absolutely. Grabbing women by the pussy. Right. We all saw and heard that, and it doesn't seem to um, have diminished the level, doesn't seem to have changed the voting behavior of those who were inclined antecedently to vote for him, even though it certainly horrified uh, to a significant extent those who were already disinclined uh, to vote for him. Um, uh, what, what to say about that? It's a very peculiar... <laughs> well, it's interesting, though, because there was such good evidence even before that that sure. Trump had been much worse. Um, you know, I think it's He's very plausibly a rapist. I think he very plausibly raped his then-wife, Ivana Trump, in the late 80s. She's since repudiated it, but in a way that is utterly typical of the wives or ex-wives of these powerful men who speak out at one point and are then not taken very seriously or nothing really happens. And, you know, I, I look at these um, several cases where these women go on to recant their testimony. So again, another myth is that once a woman tells her story, that's like it, that she'll continue to tell it. She might end up siding with him against her former self. So that's one issue. Another is that when it comes to Trump's boastfulness um, to Billy Bush, yes, people were shocked, but why were they shocked? I mean, Trump has moral tenures, to put it really you know, to understate it considerably, um, he's utterly shameless and he also has no mastery of the idiom. So the way that he expressed himself, I moved on her like a bitch, 
think Adam Gopnik put it best in the New Yorker two days afterward, saying, is that even an idiom? And the answer is no, it is not. What Trump said was consistent with his, you know, more or less known prior behavior and, in fact, wasn't the worst of it. But the way he expressed himself and hearing his voice saying it, people had a visceral reaction because it's like people don't talk about sex that way normally. Men who assault women usually think of themselves as suave and seducers. They usually aren't that explicit. But because of Trump's general moral shamelessness and also just peculiar, um, peculiarly both um, like just impoverished, but also, yeah, just odd lexicon. Um, I, I think his choice of words was what, people were repulsed by and yeah it doesn't say very much about you know the republicans who initially you know finally were prepared to cut ties with him and not support him for five minutes i don't even think they necessarily were reacting to the moral significance of what he said so much as having a visceral um disgust reaction like paul ryan he said he was sickened Right, and you know, I, I'm sure you've um, you've 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 done this um, this test, and you know, when Trump gives a speech, it's often not hard shortly thereafter to go find somebody who's taken a verbatim transcript, yeah, and then posts it and says, "Look how little of this actually." It's forget about it not being, you know, grammatically sound and all the rest. Like so much of what gets enunciated as a sentence, in fact is nonsense. (laughs) It's really interesting. It's both the shamelessness, like watching him is a very interesting experience because there are these moments where, you know, for most, most of us, we would be really embarrassed to sound that ignorant or self-contradictory or, you know, not be able to answer a, a question, you know, in an even vaguely on point way in that role. But he just, like, he draws, it's like he's, he's completely blank and, you know, like, impervious to the normal sorts of shame reactions that one has when one's shown to be grossly lacking in the relevant um, respects. But when one reads the transcript that you're right, there's this other element, which is, like, his talk is almost like this kind of soothing to his supporters in-group um you know, encouraging, but it's it's almost like, you know, the sort of, um, you know, nonsense, soothing baby talk that, you know, one might, you know, give, you know, for to comfort, like, you know, a pet that's upset or an infant that's crying. Like, it doesn't mean anything. Right. So, Kate, you've been you've been very generous with your time. It's been great to talk to you about your book, Down Girl. Um, uh, last question. Um, I, where do we go from here? Do you, do you have any do you have any hope? Oh, mm, well, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I guess it was funny. I, this time last year, I, I spent a week in New York City alone trying to write the conclusion of my book, which my editor had asked me to write a prescriptive conclusion, which was a perfectly reasonable request which I wanted to comply with, but I just couldn't because the thing is, I think for me, um, 
what it was important to see in writing the book is that prescribing something morally requires to some extent taking maybe not the moral high ground in any very general way, but it requires standing back and, you know, a little bit of the pronouncement, even if there's a spirit of there, but for the grace of, you know, worker people who educated me and hard work and mistakes made, you know, go I. Even in that spirit, you have to say, look, morally, um, I think I am recommending something that makes the best sense here, or at least good sense. And that's a position that misogyny itself prohibits for women. One is not meant to either draw attention to one's own moral predicament in a way that's, you know, held to be self-dramatizing. So that's where I think there is something revolutionary about saying in an unapologetic way, yes, I was the victim of this um, sexual or other misogynistic um, form of wrongdoing. That's just a fact, a social fact, history. But also, one's not supposed to say, here is what um, we ought to do going forward. And so, you know, there are thoughts that um, I have about how to combat this, but a lot of them involve us getting better at um, accepting women in the very position that I would need to put myself in, in order to... um, yeah, issue the kind of prescriptive conclusion that, yeah, in some sense it would be good to be able to issue, and in another sense, um, I also don't think that it's my responsibility necessarily to provide more hope than it's rational to have at this point. Patriarchy is very hard to combat. It is um, progress is made for privileged women like me, but gosh, we're going to have to work hard to get further, faster for girls and women in, you know, other social positions um, who are incredibly vulnerable. Um, do you think uh, the, the the Me Too movement, particularly the hashtag, has an element of of the, the kind of um, the kind of risk you were just you were just mentioning that it's uh, solidarity uh, 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 among a group of people who, you know, who have been wronged in, in serious and terrible ways, but there is, it does have a, a, a kind of social privilege attached to it? Yeah, I think that that's right. It seems very non-accidental that the first group of victims who were taken seriously, um, Harvey Weinstein's, um, you know, in the um, Alyssa Milano's, um, you know, uh, sort of co-opting of the Tirana Burke um, hashtag. It, it's not accidental they were, you know, white, rich, um, right. themselves powerful and, you know, stereotypically Hollywood beautiful. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of the women who can't afford to say anything are, yeah, we need to think both about that and about the fact that it's not just powerful and older men who are perpetuating these kinds of misogyny, but if, you know, both the statistics and the testimony of um, the victims of Weinstein and Spacey very much bear this out, um, these men start young. They self-report as starting um, on average at age 16 if for serial sexual predators. So we need to not just weed out 
powerful and older bad apples, but we need to start looking at what it would take to really um, educate young men, you know, in, in high school um, and even beforehand about what it takes not to be both participating directly in and enabling rape culture. And I think it's going to take a major shift socially. Well, Kate, um, thank you so much for your time today. And, and I really want to thank you for the book. The, uh, the book is titled, again, um, Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. It's a really, really fantastic read. And um, uh, I've been recommending it uh, to everyone who listen. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thank you. And thank you, listener, listeners, for tuning into the Why We Argue podcast, which I'll remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project uh, with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at Public Humility. That's one word, so at Public Humility. Thank you, and bye for now. <laughs>